Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to a special 30 Years War episode looking at, well, why you'll be interested in this conflict and why I think it's worthy of your time. In this episode, we go into some detail about the themes, the causes, the different actors involved in the war, and we also have some discussion about the Second World War, why I think the Thirty Years' War has been mostly eclipsed, and why very few people know or care about it, and why I think this is a mistake. A whole load of details such as those are on the way, and by the end of this episode, you should be fairly confident that you will enjoy what we're doing here in When Diplomacy Fails. If you think you will, make sure to check out the previous 43 episodes that have come before this one, and keep an eye out for the next one, because they come out every two weeks. I'm on holidays at the moment, you see, so during this week here, I thought I'd repurpose some of my old content, which is still perfectly good, get rid of the old plugs and insert these new ones here, such as for Matchlock and the Embassy. Oh yeah, I'm sure you've heard me talk about it to death by this point, but just in case you're completely unaware, Matchlock and the Embassy is historical fiction, and it's set during the Thirty Years' War. We follow Matthew Locke as he lands in Europe in 1622 to find out the truth about the brutal murder of his parents. You can follow this story along and you can get in touch with me and all the usual social media channels. But if you'd like to get the book itself, just click on the link in the description below and it'll bring you to your preferred vendor. The support I've received from you guys for this new venture in historical fiction has been so appreciated and really so surprising and so humbling. You'll not be shocked to learn, though, I'm always eager for more support and more praise. If you've read it, though, and you do enjoy it, then please let me know. Reviews are really the lifeblood for independent authors like myself. I won't say any more on Matchlock and the Embassy, but I will say that I hope by the end of this episode, you will have a good idea of why the Thirty Years' War is the perfect war for you. Without any further ado, then, let's get into it. The Thirty Years' War was the 17th century's main event. It was the Great War of the early modern period, but it remains somewhat unknown. There is of course a vast amount of history enthusiasts who live and breathe Thirty Years' War, but maybe you listening right now, you're not among these. Maybe you've tuned in to see, as the title of this episode suggests, why you'd be interested in this chapter of history. Well, this episode is part history, part story. 
It's a story about me and what I've learned about people's perceptions of the Thirty Years' War, but at its core is a relatively simple message. You will be interested in the Thirty Years' War if you're interested in even the most infamous of all conflicts, the Second World War. That's because, as I explain here, while they were three centuries apart, both conflicts hold a lot of things in common. The Thirty Years' War's story is less straightforward, it's less black and white, and the question of who was the bad guy is sometimes hard to pin down. But, as you'll hopefully agree after listening here, that makes the Thirty Years' War a richer learning experience, not a more confusing one. It makes for exciting listening or for reading, and you shouldn't be intimidated by this conflict just because of its length. I believe that the Thirty Years' War is worthy of your time, and if you have even a surface interest in history, there's no reason why you won't find something within this conflict, something within this era, to draw you in. As you'll discover today, though, the Thirty Years' War is not a dry story. In fact, it's a cacophony of fascinating, interconnected stories, which set a new standard for drama and intrigue. From 1618 to 48, this war dominated the lives of the contemporaries, And for those hardy enough to live through its duration, they must have felt like they were living on the brink of an apocalypse. Europe's rulers, who controlled states of varying size and power, all were forced to pick a side in this conflict, hence the tagline of my book. Would they choose God, or would they choose the devil? Would they make the right choice in time to save their regime, their lands and their people? These were burning questions. They were also an increasingly common dilemma as the Thirty Years' War grew in size and scope, sucking in those powers like a swirling vortex, with some powers never to be seen again. The Thirty Years' War cost the lives of at least 8 million people. It ripped through much of modern-day Germany, and it facilitated the rise of great empires, while hastening the decline of others. There is, in short, a lot to unpack in this event. It's unsurprising that a lot could happen in the space of three decades, but there is also lots to be interested in, whether it was the technological innovations, the sneaky diplomatic intrigue which the major powers were involved in, or the epic confrontations between rival dynasties with scenes apparently ripped straight out of Game of Thrones. All of this in mind, in a history-related Facebook group boasting more than 20,000 members, spoiler alert, it's the Hardcore History Podcast Facebook group, just so you're aware, but I posed this question. You see, I wanted to gauge the interest, as much as gauge the knowledge, of those in the group when it came to the Thirty Years' War. What surprised me wasn't the lack of interest, but the lack of knowledge. And this knowledge gap didn't come from ignorance, but from an impression that the era was too complicated, that the conflict was too tangled to be properly understood. Interestingly, the fact that the Thirty Years' War boasts such a rich, varied and detailed historiography, and in English, no less, seems to count against it among the casual history enthusiast. When it comes to getting to grips with the Thirty Years' War, where, these people wondered, does one start? The responses in this group confirmed what I had already long suspected, that a niche existed in the Thirty Years' War genre for a new approach, an approach which was casual, accessible and engaging, but which still presented a comprehensive, scholarly account of this pivotal conflict. Was such a balance as this possible? Was it possible to make an accessible book on the Thirty Years' War, which was also academic and well-researched and even contained some endnotes? Gasp? Well, C.V. Wedgwood, or Cicely Veronica Wedgwood, certainly believed so. In 1938, 
at just 28 years old, with just a BA in Modern History and Classics to her name, Wedgwood penned the first English language narrative of the Thirty Years' War in generations, and her account has served as the unofficial benchmark of the conflict ever since. Contemporaries marvelled at her writing style and her ability to communicate facts and events through such an engaging narrative. Wedgwood, in effect, turned the Thirty Years' War into a story, and it was a story with a beginning, a middle and an end, and one which appealed to those even remotely curious about early modern European history. I am also 28 years old, and this year, after many years of work, my account on the Thirty Years' War, For God or the Devil, intends to pick up the baton where Wedgwood left off over 80 years ago. It has been 80 years, in fact, since the reading public has been so captivated by the Thirty Years' War, yet there's no reason why this should necessarily be the case. Authors like Geoffrey Parker and Peter H. Wilson have released their own accounts of the conflict. While these sources have been invaluable to me and other scholars and students, they seem to have failed to make the same inroads into the general reading public that Wedgwood managed. Although Wedgwood's contemporaries were distracted by the coming apocalypse of the Second World War, they still purchased Wedgwood's book in startling numbers. It would even be fair to say, I think, that those living on the eve of the Second World War knew and understood more about the Thirty Years' War than we do today. The reason for this, I would argue, is hardly surprising. The Second World War was such an all-consuming experience for the English-speaking world that interest in that conflict has steadily increased ever since. It's become the most written-about event in human history in the process, bar none. This is even reflected in the popularity of documentaries, films and video games which focus on the genre. I don't know about you, but if you remember the History Channel, I used to call that the Hitlery Channel, because that was literally all the documentaries that ever seemed to be on it. How I long for those days when there wasn't an Axeman or a Swamp Person or a Pawn Star in sight. But I digress. Although a deep World War II historiography has been the result of all of this focus, this monopoly on the attention of historians, students and enthusiasts seems to have cost us the knowledge of older conflicts. But why has this happened? Why is the Thirty Years' War lumped into this unfortunate trend? Why is it forgotten? And why is it mostly unknown? Is it really possible that by focusing so intently on World War II-related studies, earlier studies have been neglected? Perhaps there is an expectation that because World War II was more modern, it's somehow more relevant than a conflict fought 300 years earlier. Perhaps there is the impression that the citizens of the early 17th century were just too unlike us to feel like relatable subjects for study. Or perhaps we imagine that more complex conflicts, fought for less black-and-white reasons, with an unclear indication of who was good and who was evil, would be less captivating. Maybe all of these issues and more besides can be used to explain why the Thirty Years' War has been underappreciated by the mainstream historical enthusiast. If this is the case, though, it shouldn't be blamed upon the Thirty Years' War itself, because this conflict was not a dull, drudging affair as one army limped from A to B and back again for three decades. It'd be a mistake as well to assume that 17th century characters couldn't possibly resonate with us, merely because they happened to live in a world which was far more spiritual and superstitious than that of today. Religion was central to the lives and routines of such characters, but it wasn't all that they were. People also fought as we would to protect their homes, their livelihoods and their families, 
and this struggle went on at every level of the social ladder at one time or another. The situation which greeted citizens of central Germany was not all that different, I would argue, from that which greeted citizens who happened to live in the path of Nazi Germany. A choice had to be made. Flee, hide, grin and bear it, collaborate, or a mixture of all of these options. Now I want to preface this by saying that of course, nothing in human history like the genocidal evil of the Third Reich has ever existed before or since, but Germans living in the region at the time of that war would have had historical memories handed down through generations to compare it to if they wanted to. Not even Napoleon, it was said, replaced the terror which some children were threatened with when they misbehaved and were told that Gustavus Adolphus would get them if they didn't shape up. Of course, that's a more severe, let's say, child abuse version of how the Thirty Years' War has travelled through the centuries. The Thirty Years' War may have been dwarfed by the Second World War, but for centuries it was the war of Europe. It was arguably the last German war of religion, and so would mark its end as the beginning not only of a more decentralised Holy Roman Empire, but also as the beginning of early modern history as we know it. Honestly, I find the hero worship of the 1648 Peace of Westphalia somewhat wrong-headed. We've done a series on Is the Treaty of Westphalia Overrated? So you can check that out in the feed if you want. It's a story for another day, we're not going to get into it here. What I do find fascinating, though, is that it took the Nazis, the literal Nazis, to supersede the Thirty Years' War in experience and reputation, and that is significant. Only the worst war in human history, in other words, could supersede the German experience of the Thirty Years' War. To me, that suggests that the Thirty Years' War was something really terrible, but also that it played host to characters and events on an unprecedented scale, and that its consequences were seismic. If we accept that all this is true, and trust me when I say it is, then it remains to ask a question to you. After this rambling exercise, do you want to learn more about an event which dominated European historical memory for centuries? This is hopefully the point where you say yes, but on the other hand, if you're still not convinced, let me assure you of something important. The era which I want to transport you to was different in many respects to our own. Values, beliefs, rights, which we take for granted now, were only in development in 1618. However, you know that sick feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when something awful happens, or is about to happen? Well, that's not a 21st century invention. Life was more difficult in the 17th century, but these people were still people like us, with a goal we can certainly empathise with, survival. The people that lived during this war, and particularly those that lived in its warpath, had to contend with unimaginable struggles, and by its end, those that survived used this experience to their advantage. Some harnessed this experience to insist never again, an echo of something we might have heard in 1918. Others let the experience harden them, as they planned for additional total wars into the future. Just as surely as those in the warpath would have to make a choice, so too were the leaders of the state they lived in, however small or inconsequential it was. One figure who knew all about the importance of decision-making was a guy we've met many times by now if you've listened to the previous introductory episodes, Frederick V, one of the most influential Protestant German rulers at the time of the Thirty Years' War's outbreak. Frederick, as we've learned by now, was responsible for accepting the crown of Bohemia, which some ragtag rebels had offered him. 
Rather than romantically come into his new kingdom as he may have hoped or expected, Frederick found that he faced a nightmare scenario. His allies abandoned him, his neighbours took advantage of him, and his enemies closed in to land the killing blow. In 1620, Frederick was forced to watch as his home and his homeland were effectively destroyed. This ordeal might have reduced lesser men to tears, but Frederick was either too resilient or too stubborn to lay down his arms. For a decade he wandered, flittering between different highly positioned family members. As he moved, he also kept the war going against the Holy Roman Emperor Ferdinand II by promoting his cause to potential allies and foes of Ferdinand's family. After innumerable failures, Frederick's fortunes swung round dramatically in the course of a single day, as the King of Sweden triumphed over the forces of the Emperor during the September 1631 Battle of Breitenfeld. Within weeks of this triumph, Frederick was privileged to join the King of Sweden for a game on the private tennis court of the Duke of Bavaria, a firm ally of Ferdinand and Frederick's sworn enemy. This latter scene was one we breathed additional life into in the previous episode, so check that out if that striking scene sounds interesting to you. This brief synopsis, though, demonstrates how firmly the fortunes of war could change. After occupying the losing side of the war for years, suddenly Frederick could dream of a life in the victor's circle. Unfortunately for Frederick, the fortunes of the war were about to blow the opposite way yet again. He died in anticlimactic circumstances of a fever, of all things, at the age of just 36. While he had lived, Frederick's personal animosity towards Emperor Ferdinand and the Emperor's right-hand man, Maximilian the Duke of Bavaria, had empowered Frederick's diplomatic schemes, and he never accepted the injustice of his banishment from Germany or the occupation of his lands by Spanish and Bavarian soldiers. Frederick died before the Thirty Years' War reached its full conclusion, and his ancestral lands were passed to his son. But he had lived to see one of many shifts in fortune in the conflict, and the resurgence of the Emperor's enemies confirmed that the total victory for Ferdinand would not be as easy as initially believed. And yet, saying that, Ferdinand came very close indeed to achieving this victory. In 1634, forces commanded by his nephew and son triumphed over a combined army of Protestant Germans and Swedish veterans at the Battle of Nordlingen. The Emperor's victory was so supreme that the reaction was strikingly similar to that of the Emperor's allies just two years before, where once they had abandoned the Emperor in his time of peril, now they insisted they were ready to pledge allegiance to him once again. To meet this desperate situation head-on, it was at this phase of the conflict that France, which up to this point had been neutral in quotation marks and had only engaged in proxy wars outside of the main German conflict, it was at this point that France determined that the time had come to get more involved. And by spring 1635, France was at war with Emperor Ferdinand and with Spain, Spain being the kingdom where Ferdinand's cousins ruled as kings. Initially pursuing an aggressive policy of attack, Ferdinand and his allies overwhelmed the French, but the durability of the French premier, Cardinal Richelieu, and his regime ultimately held firm. By 1640, France was supported in its war against Spain by the Dutch, who themselves had been fighting a turbulent conflict against Madrid for their independence since the 1560s. Much like the Thirty Years' War, Dutch fortunes during their War of Independence against Spain, also called the Eighty Years' War, had ebbed and flowed as well, 
but now the strength of the Dutch position was beginning to tell. Attacking from their base in modern-day Belgium, Spain's Spanish Netherlands army seemed no longer able to meet the Dutch challenge in Europe, and certainly not at sea. It was at sea where the Dutch made plain to its former Spanish overlord just how outmatched Madrid was. In 1629, Spain's entire silver fleet, which was meant to pay for the next few years of campaigning, was captured by a Dutch admiral. A decade later in the Battle of the Downs, the Dutch annihilated a Spanish fleet in the English Channel, establishing a naval supremacy which the owners of that channel would dispute in a few years. Combating the joint Franco-Dutch front was a significant burden, but worse for Spain was the eruption of rebellion at home from 1640, first in Catalonia and later in Portugal. Both Iberian provinces had their own reasons for rebellion, but the end result was the same. Spain was bleeding from several wounds, and could no longer oppose her rivals as she used to. This situation was confirmed in 1643, when French soldiers destroyed a Spanish-German army at Recroy, thus shattering the vaunted myth of Spanish superiority on the battlefield. Certainly, from this brief synopsis, it's clear that the Thirty Years' War is of a very different character to the Second World War. There were no Nazis, no policies of genocide, and certainly no Blitzkrieg. However, the 1618-48 conflict did contain horrific scenes of devastation and destruction which were unparalleled up to that point. Indeed, and this should be emphasised, in terms of the damage done to Germany in particular, the Thirty Years' War wasn't superseded until the 1939-45 war. Not even the total wars of Napoleon Bonaparte or World War I could compare to the pre-industrial ruination of Germany's countryside, or the removal of up to half the population in some regions. Some cities like Magdeburg, which was sacked in 1631, never fully recovered, and Magdeburg was transformed from a bustling centre of 40,000 people into a ghost town of barely 5,000 people. The only comparable experience for Magdeburg, interestingly, was in 1945, when Allied bombing levelled the city on an eerily familiar scale. Other cities, such as Prague, managed to host both the opening act of the Thirty Years' War, in the form of that infamous defenestration, and the final battle of the war, before the Peace of Westphalia was signed. Unlike World War II, Germany was not invaded from the east by Russia. Instead, Germany, the Holy Roman Empire as it was then known, was invaded from the north by an adventuring Swedish king, who just so happened to be a military genius. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The actors, in a way, were also the same. A unified Germany didn't exist in 1640. Instead, that Holy Roman Empire we've mentioned was ruled by an emperor. And this emperor, in our case, Ferdinand, ruled over more than 200 smaller German principalities of varying size and influence. Some of these states the emperor relied on as an ally, such as Bavaria, while others of these states chopped and changed with the fortunes of the war, looking at you, Saxony. The emperor, who had his base in most of Austria, portions of modern Hungary, the Czech Republic and the Slovak Republic, was far less powerful than his status and titles may have suggested. He was unable to pay his allies, so he granted them lands and titles which were not actually his to distribute. He also attempted to reverse years of religious history in the so-called Edict of Restitution, which did more harm than good to his cause. The Emperor was joined by Spain, because the Spanish were related to the Austrian Habsburgs, as we've established by now, and the Spanish possessed colonies in the New World and within Europe, but Spanish power had long been on the decline and 1640 seemed to have been the turning point in terms of years, when King Philip IV faced revolts in every corner of his domains. By then it was clear that the emperor was largely on his own in Germany. This was a formidable prospect because since 1632, Sweden had maintained a presence of some kind in the northern portion of Germany. As the emperor's strategic position weakened, Sweden was blessed with a succession of capable generals who managed to rebound from the disasters of the mid-1630s. Sweden was also bolstered by subsidies and supplies provided by its major ally, France. So yes, France was great friends with the Dutch, who were fighting against Spain, but they were also great friends with the Swedes, who were fighting against the Emperor. This Franco-Swedish accord, which was directed against Emperor Ferdinand, was remarkably similar to the Franco-Dutch alliance, which was directed against Spain. Both of these initiatives produced fruit, and it ensured that the Habsburg dynasty would be forced to the peace table before long. In spite of these odds, though, the Thirty Years' War reached a point by about 1645 when it no longer appeared possible to achieve total victory. Unlike World War II, there would be no large-scale invasion of Vienna, akin to the invasion of Berlin in the dying days of the Second World War, and there would certainly be no unconditional surrender of the Emperor's forces. Instead, both sides would be forced to compromise and live with one another. This, indeed, was one of the great consequences of the conflict. 
it effectively stabilised Germany by cautioning her citizens against entering such an abyss again. It was understood and accepted that going to war in the Holy Roman Empire for the sake of one's holy religion was no longer feasible or advisable. Instead, the Empire's Germans turned inwards and they assessed their immediate domestic positions, and this facilitated the rise of more powerful German states like Austria, Prussia, Bavaria and Saxony. Simultaneously, these actors became more willing to operate outside the confines of the Emperor's orders and towards their own interests. We need only look at the 1700s to see how this manifested itself. States like Prussia, formerly just called Brandenburg Prussia, were now proclaimed kingdoms, while states like Hanover attached themselves to the British succession, and Saxony gained the Polish crown. Even Austria carved out a new niche for itself in south-central Europe, as it tried to expand in the Balkans and push back the Ottoman Turks. The seeds of what would later be considered critical moments in European history were in effect sown during the Thirty Years' War. By the time of its conclusion, indeed, King Louis XIV of France was nearly ten years old, and he was already obsessed with warfare and soldiers. Louis XIV would provide the impetus behind the next series of wars, replacing the emperor as the boogeyman of all Germans, and contributing to the sense of Franco-German hostility in the process, which was still alive and well, by 1939. Perhaps the greatest difference between the two conflicts, though, is the length, an obvious statistic which holds a less obvious fact within. The furies wrought by the Thirty Years' War were considerable and long-lasting, but they weren't inflicted evenly, and they could not compare to World War II's industrial levels of slaughter and deliberate murder, particularly in the East. Indeed, more lives were extinguished in the three-year period of 1942-45 to than in the entirety of the Thirty Years' War. Just let that sink in. In three years, in the 20th century, more people died than in 30 years of the 17th. But that's saying as much about the ideology of the period as it does about the tools at one's disposal. It makes me shudder to think of what either side would have done in the 1630s or 40s had they stumbled across repeating rifles, hulking tanks or booming artillery pieces. We can at least be thankful that these actors were restricted in what they could do by the technology of the era, but the ideology which spurred both sides on in the 1600s was still powerful, as was the strength of pure ambition which the rising French, Swedish and Dutch states pursued with a newfound vengeance. The dominance of the Second World War in popular literature, media and study is due in large part to its immediacy and relevance in shaping our current political order. It is a world-famous conflict, and it's likely the first event people think of when they're asked about history. My goal is, and always has been, to make the Thirty Years' War equally famous, and to unravel the remarkable characters, themes and events in a format which is accessible and engaging. Much like Wedgwood in 1938, I'm writing outside the quote-unquote academic field, insofar as I have not been published directly by a university contact or such another deal as that, but I'm still upholding the tenets of watertight scholarship and transparent referencing, of course. This book and the podcast series on the Thirty Years' War which goes along with it harnesses my years of experience in taking complex events or conflicts and breaking them down so that they can be absorbed or appreciated better. The medium of podcasting, in fact, prepared me brilliantly for the creation of this book, 
because I learned the importance of storytelling. For God or the Devil, then, is a narrative of a three-decade conflict, but it can also be interpreted as a collection of overlapping, interconnected stories. As these stories advance, a new figure or theme or corner of Europe is presented to the reader, and thus the narrative moves ever onward. Obviously, don't feel pressured to buy the book, but since the book is based upon the podcast and vice versa, you should tune into our regular programming on the Thirty Years' War once we resume it in a few weeks if you've been interested by what we've talked about here. Hesitant readers or listeners may worry that the Thirty Years' War contains too many rabbit holes, too many alien terms, and is simply too long to be enjoyed or appreciated fully. Well, to this, I would contend that the Second World War, while it's only six years in length technically, it's also infinitesimally complex, and it only feels less so because we've been taught to view it as familiar. To narrate the twists and turns of the conflict, to come to terms with the characters involved, to comfortably classify the Second World War, all of these are on their own formidable tasks. Mainstream coverage of World War II has done wonders to break down these barriers to greater study and to open the major themes and events of the war up to the casual enthusiast. There is great but unfulfilled potential, I believe, in doing the same for the Thirty Years' War. It can seem infinitely complex and impenetrable, but actually the Thirty Years' War followed a surprisingly straightforward formula. And if you listen to our catch-up episode, this will all be familiar to you, but let's run it down from the top anyway. It began as a regional affair in Bohemia in 1618, and then, just when the Emperor had defeated all of those enemies, in 1625, Denmark intervened. Even now, it wasn't too late to keep the conflict contained. Only when Ferdinand's Habsburg dynasty soundly defeated its enemies by 1629, and the Emperor proved an ungracious, demanding victor, did other powers feel compelled to involve themselves. This, like the example of Frederick finally achieving his victory, provides us with another great story, this one of comeuppance for the Emperor, who had been too overmighty at the peace table and would pay the price with the elongation of the war. These interventions didn't just exacerbate the impact of the war, they also raised the stakes, because the very active intervention was in itself a gamble, and to avoid ruin, it was essential that some form of reward was seized. In the name of achieving that reward, armies would balloon in size, bleed lands dry, and upend the apple cart of many centuries worth of progress. From that point, as the King of Sweden had observed, all the wars that are afoot in Europe have become one war. By the 1630s, in fact, this conflict looked less like a conflict and more akin to a vortex, which sucked in all powers and states in Europe and denied the options of neutrality or compromise to all but a very select few. The related but distant conflicts that were adjacent to the Thirty Years' War, which mostly took place in Germany, also deserve mention. These related conflicts include that between the Spanish and the Dutch that we mentioned, also between the Russians and Poles, the Ottomans and Persians, and the British Civil War itself. All of these congealed in the middle of the continent, to the point that every decision, every actor, and every triumph or defeat created ripples which could be felt on the other side of Europe. This was doubly the case where critically important actors were married to another prestigious family. Frederick's children, for instance, were half English, and they thus fought for their father's cousin, Charles I, in the Civil War. This kept the memory of the Thirty Years' War alive in Britain to a surprising extent. 
When Charles II was restored to the crown of Britain in 1660, for instance, Elizabeth Stuart, Frederick's wife, who was by that point in her 60s herself, was still referred to as the Queen of Bohemia by some. A reference which shows us that people didn't just move on after 1648. The impact of the conflict, whether they were winners or losers, stuck with the contemporaries that were involved. As the stakes were raised, so too were the armies, until Europe appeared to march towards something of a crescendo of violence, on a scale unparalleled and previously unimaginable. By the time those involved withdrew from the abyss, millions had died, whole dynasties had been crushed, and Europe was never the same again. Yet from these ashes grew strong shoots of life. The war was the laboratory and education for the military geniuses still to come in the 17th century, and the war's consequences lay the foundations for national stories and myths, which would make the eventful century both famous and infamous all at once. Thus, the Thirty Years' War served to bring an era of religious conflict in the Empire mostly to an end, but it also ushered in an era which was to dominate until the arrival of Napoleon. These transformations, as Europe marched from one epoch to another, were not tidy or uniform. Historians still debate the Thirty Years' War's legacy and the reputation which the Peace of Westphalia has come to enjoy. But that's very far from all that historians disagree on. Was it a religious war, a war of national interest, or a war fought for purely political reasons? In fact, I would argue that the Thirty Years' War was all these things and more. It was a Pandora's box of conflict which was impossible to contain. It was the 17th century equivalent to Game of Thrones, or even House of Cards, with intrigue, scheming, and legendary betrayals underpinning a winding narrative which began and ended, poetically enough, in the city of Prague. For God or the Devil embraces the challenges posed by the Thirty Years' War. This book brings forward the epic struggle between peoples and nations, and it follows the breathless increase in stakes and animosities, as the conflict built towards a new standard of destruction and devastation in early modern Europe. It also underlines the human element of the war, captured in the book's very title. They were either with the victors, or they were against them. They could choose God, or they could choose the devil. And there was absolutely no guarantee that, within a campaign, the roles wouldn't be reversed, or those victors wouldn't be destroyed, along with those allies who had once fearfully flocked to their side. In this atmosphere of risk, every political decision was accompanied by high drama. Above all, though, this book and podcast series demonstrates a central truth of the conflict, that it completely dominated the lives of those who lived through it, and it denied contemporaries any option to steer clear of its furies. In many cases, in fact, major actors had their choices made for them, and they were forced to add their weight to the swirling mass of decay and death, which threatened to overcome the entirety of Western civilization. In a sense, then, this book and the podcast series which goes along with it were created to fulfil a niche and a need. This niche is nothing less than the first comprehensive retelling of this story in a decade, updated and structured to draw the reader or listener in and engage their imagination and interests. While the need is for an account of the war which reads more like an adventuring novel than a dry recounting of events. The need, indeed, is for a work which popularises the Thirty Years' War and brings its era, its characters and its events to life. 
I am confident that if we can keep up with the complexities of the Second World War, then the Thirty Years' War won't pose an undue challenge if you're reading or listening. If you can follow the Second World War's Eastern Front, its Pacific Campaign, or any number of other interconnected fronts, then focusing on the Thirty Years' War will not be mission impossible by any stretch. I'm also confident that enthusiasts of the Second World War will find themselves engrossed in a retelling of the Thirty Years' War. For whatever reason, histories of the Thirty Years' War have yet to resonate with the general public on the same level as studies focused on World War II. This state of affairs, I feel, must be changed if we're to fully comprehend and appreciate our past. It is also my belief that on the basis of its dramatic events, its weighted battles, the fascinating evolution of its alliance blocks, the wide results of its diplomacy, the sneaky sophistication of its intrigues, and the sheer interconnectedness of the different theatres, that the Thirty Years' War is a story which needs, no, I would say, deserves to be told, and known. The more I learned about the Thirty Years' War, the more I felt I needed to know, and this sense of curiosity is something I attempted to replicate in any work I do on the conflict, so that the underlying passions and interests of the reader or listener might be picked, and the spark of wonder and awe which drove me to make all this stuff would move you to go on a journey with me to complete it. Any individual, I believe, with even a surface interest in history will find something to entice them further. It doesn't mean that they need to learn the Thirty Years' War off by heart, in other words, to actually get to grips with parts of it and enjoy those parts. They merely need to begin their journey with an open mind. In the same way that enthusiasts of the Second World War can prefer the Pacific Campaign or the Eastern Front or the preparations that led to D-Day, you too can look at the Thirty Years' War as a matter of choice. What part of it is your favourite? Focus on that part, and before long, you'll realise that it's even more fascinating than you'd first thought. Speaking of making a choice... You'll need to make another choice. Are you for God or are you for the devil? Make a decision, you heathen. For God or the devil depicts a world ravaged by war, where individuals were forced to make impossible decisions between right and wrong, survival and death. It should be familiar to us, because we've seen this before in its concentrated industrial scale. The gods and the devils may have been more explicit in the Second World War, but the choice itself was nothing new to those Europeans caught in the warpath. That's going to do it for this Why You Be Interested in the Thirty Years' War episode here, guys. I hope you've taken something from it, and I hope you've been encouraged to at least check the Thirty Years' War out, to dip your toe in and see what you think. At the very worst, you could come away confirming what you already know, or think you know about the conflict, that you weren't actually that interested, and you're going to stay with World War II, thank you very much. But on the other hand, you could find that it sparks a new passion within you for this era. And while you're at it, the 1600s really are fantastic. They are so fascinating and so interesting, and I can't wait to spend more time on them in the future. If you have any questions, of course, remember we've got that Q&A coming up next week. So if you want to clear up some things beforehand, maybe that Q&A would be a great place to start. In any case, I'll be seeing you then. Thanks for all the questions you've sent me so far. Thanks so much for your support and interest in this show. And I hope, after listening here, you will consider whether or not the 30 Years' War is worth your time. Because I can assure you, it well is. I might be biased, 
but I am also your biased and lovable host. I'm Zach Twomley, and this has been the latest episode of the 30 Years War introductory series. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 